Weekend Warriors, the foreign policy podcast that asks what else is happening in the world. I'm Essie Cup. So I want to start with a quote from President Trump in late July. Quote reads, in Syria and Iraq, thanks to the brave bravery of our warriors and their allies, the ISIS territorial caliphate has been 100 percent and just absolutely destroyed. And yet a U.S. inspector general report released just weeks prior to that quote warned that ISIS still has some 14,000 to 18,000 active fighters and was resurging in Syria and reestablishing financial networks in Iraq. A rising Islamic state is an especially traumatizing prospect for Iraq's Yazidi minority who have been subject to mass executions Rampant sexual violence at the hands of ISIS. Last month marked a terrible anniversary, the fifth anniversary of ISIS's worst atrocity yet, the genocide of the Yazidi people in northern Iraq. In August 2014, ISIS invaded the Sinjar region and massacred 10,000 people, mostly men and boys over the age of 12. But they also kidnapped thousands of women and children They enslaved roughly 7,000 people and displaced over 400,000 to camps. Five years later, an estimated 80,000 Yazidis have returned to Sinjar. It's a number that is really staggeringly small when you think about the fact that 350,000 are still in camps. An estimated 3,000 women and children are still missing, unaccounted for. Now, the surviving community is pleading for international support, everything from psychological help to infrastructure to processing thousands of asylum claims. And leading that charge has been a woman named Nadia Murad, one of those women who was kidnapped by ISIS in 2014. She also won the 2018 Nobel Nobel Peace Prize. She's been a champion for Yazidi survivors and wrote in July... We want justice, we want to rebuild, and we want to go home, but we cannot do so without support. I call on the international community to undertake concrete actions to support the repatriation of Yazidis. It's a story you probably have not heard a whole lot of because there is a sea of terrible stories from the Syrian civil war to the Rohingya crisis, on and on and on, but this is an atrocity that you have to know about. Now, another woman who has tirelessly sought justice and accountability for the Yazidi genocide is international human rights lawyer and advocate Philippa Greer. At the London School of Economics, she was part of their Women, Peace and Security Network, focusing on the genocide. Her extensive human rights work also includes working as a lawyer for the U.N. for international criminal tribunals and U.N. assistance at the Khmer Rouge trials. Philippa joins me now. Uh, Welcome. I'm sorry on such terrible circumstances, but it's really important that you're that you're here to talk about this. So I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to join you here. And thank you so much for covering this really important issue. Um, So obviously you've seen a lot of terrible things. How do how does the Yazidi atrocity stack up against some of the other awful things? Well, five years after the genocide for the Yazidis, there's no justice for them as a religious minority group. And so this is really a crisis um, that they're facing in terms of humanitarian assistance. They're facing a crisis of accountability. And it's not often reported on because they are a minority group. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell my listeners who might not know a lot about who the Yazidis are, um, why they, you know, were targeted by ISIS? Talk a little bit about who they are. Yes. Um, So it's vital to remember that the Yazidis um, have faced violence for centuries and they've been persecuted against because they are a religious minority. And so the first written account of their persecution dates back from the 13th century. They've been victims because of their beliefs and due to misunderstandings that they worship um, the devil, which is, of course, a mistaken falsehood. Um, People have persecuted them throughout centuries because of this minority element to their religion. And it's really false to describe them as devil worshippers. They've long lived under the threat of persecution, in part for this misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Their culture and religion is transferred through oral means. And as a result of that, they are not afforded the same level of protection under Islamic law as those um, people who are people of the book, Mm. um, those who read from the Bible or the Quran or the Torah. And so as a result, they've not received as much um, protection in that uh, region over time. They were victims under the Ottoman and Kurdish um, authorities and under successive Iraqi governments. And actually, prior to ISIS's genocide of the Yazidis in 2014, there were large-scale terrorist attacks against them in 2007, um, allegedly conducted by al-Qaeda. And these attacks resulted in 800 deaths of Yazidis, 1,500 Yazidis being injured, 600 homes destroyed as a result of suicide bombings. And so they have been long subjected to persecution over time, which predates ISIS. And ISIS has taken on these mistaken misunderstandings of their religion and persecuted them within their own extremist ideology today. Is is the goal of ISIS conversion or is the goal, is, is there an ideological impulse behind targeting Yazidis? Yes. Yeah, so when the Yazidis were targeted by ISIS in August 2014, ISIS separated the men from the women and asked the men to convert to Islam. If they didn't agree to convert, then they were executed en masse, Mm -hmm. as well as older women above childbearing age being executed, younger women being taken and sold into sexual slavery, including girls as young as nine, and boys being recruited and indoctrinated into jihadist ideology. So you can imagine uh, the, the need for psychological help is understandable when you consider that an entire population of men have been taken from a population of women and girls. Yeah, there's a crisis of psychological assistance. The Yazidis have no existing services that can adequately address the trauma that they've yeah. faced as, an ex- as a community. Um, they're facing a huge dearth in access to medical care, psychosociological support. They really require assistance that's not being provided on the scale required. So I always ask when when I I have people come in to talk about some foreign affairs story. Um, These stories matter a lot to me, but I think for just an average listener, why does it matter to us? Obviously, we can talk about a humanitarian crisis and we should all care about that. But when we talk about displacement and burdening other economies, this stuff does impact us. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, of course, throughout history, there have been multiple genocides, there have been multiple conflicts, and these issues keep repeating themselves. And it's extremely important to react to early warning signs of looming atrocities. In relation to the Syrian conflict overall, there's a lot of concern currently about al hol camp in Syria and the fact that this could become an issue in terms of extremist ideology and not 
fostering de-radicalization attempts. I think in terms of the fact that, you know, everyone should care about this issue because repeatedly we say never forget, and yet there's always another genocide, there's always another minority group that's a threat of persecution over the course of time because we can't combat these issues appropriately. Following a conflict, we often say there's no peace without justice, Mm. and focus tends to be on military solutions. And sometimes we do forget as an international community about the need to at the same time foresee the justice solutions and the practical justice solutions as well. So what what concrete actions can the global community take to seeing that justice met? So there's a lot that can be done in terms of providing humanitarian support, and a lot of that relates to the support on the ground, bolstering aid support that's already there in the region and the camps to ensure adequate access to education, adequate employment opportunities, health provision, psychosociological support, all of these issues, and also just supporting the community in terms of the issues that they face to prevent intergenerational trauma, to deal with discrete issues that they currently have very little support on regarding how to deal with children born of ISIS rape in this Mm. small minority community. They've recently been stigmatized because of misconceptions about how that issue is being dealt with. Um, There's a lot that can be done. There's the issue of foreign fighters in the camps. And when we're looking towards justice, governments have a responsibility to take, you know, responsibility for Mm. their nationals and to contribute to these justice processes to ensure that there is an accurate truth telling. There's an accurate historical record. Yeah. And we can move towards reconciliation. Do you can you talk a little bit about what the U.S.? what the U.S. response or our role has been going back to the Obama administration? Have we been engaged in this? So during the 2014 genocide, um, the Obama administration authorized airstrikes, which greatly assisted the Yazidis when they were stranded at the top of Sinjar Mountain, facing starvation with no access to food or water and being surrounded by ISIS militants at the start of the genocide. And throughout that, the, the U.S. has been heavily involved. There's U.S. forces on the ground who are backing local um, support to make sure that the area is policed in terms of security, assisting with taking out the remaining cells of ISIS, which have largely remained underground at this point, Mm -hmm. and there's some insurgency concerns. The U.S. is involved in this throughout, and the U.S. has also played a role in terms of the refugee crisis. Um, There's actually 3,000 UZD refugees who are actually living in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. There's some in Minnesota, North Dakota, and this dates back from Saddam Hussein's reign and um, the U.S. invasion in 2003. So the Trump administration has drastically cut America's intake of Syrian refugees. What's his administration doing or not doing about the Yazidi uh, crisis? I think it's an issue that's not been distinctly carved out from the broader picture. But Mm -hmm. of course, there's the recent um, news about the interim order on refugee um, issues and asylum seekers. Um, Mm -hmm. He did recently host um, those from religious minorities who are refugees in the White House in July. And he spoke with Nadia Murad directly. Mm -hmm. And she expressed to him the need to assist the Yazidis to assist um, in terms of international support to resolve some geopolitical disputes surrounding their administration of Sinjar between the Iraqi central government and the Kurdistan regional government. And he said, we will do all that we can Mm. to support um, the issue. Hmm. We'll have to watch that space. Um, So how do you hold ISIS accountable? You you work at the UN, you, you you know, worked the the Khmer Rouge trials. How do you hold ISIS accountable for war crimes they're still currently committing? There's no central, you know, 
there's no leadership, uh, you know, uh, other than, you know, there's no government leadership. Um, how do you how do you prosecute a group like ISIS? Right. So just as an initial caveat, I'm speaking in my personal capacity and not as a representative sure. of the UN. But sure. There are several um, roads towards accountability. And the first step is documenting the genocide. And so the UN did do that. In 2016, we had a UN commission inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic. And they determined that a genocide had been committed. War crimes had been committed. Crimes of humani- against humanity had been committed by ISIS um, against the Yazidis. So after recognizing the genocide, the next step is preserving evidence, collecting, analyzing, preserving evidence for use in a justice process. And that's also been underway through an investigative team who are looking for accountability for Daesh. So from this, we need to look towards where will we try ISIS? Where can they be prosecuted? So one option is the International Criminal Court. Syria and Iraq, however, are not members to the Rome Statute um, establishing the International Criminal Court. And so that would have to be done through a referral of the UN Security Council Mm -hmm. under Chapter 7 powers, which is difficult because it requires the support of member states. Mm -hmm. And further, some argue that the ICC is not equipped to deal with all of these foot soldiers of ISIS because it's designed to prosecute leaders and those most responsible for atrocity crimes. Um, And there's also a, a key element that needs to be Um, taken into account when we're talking about ICC jurisdiction, and that's that it has to run complementary to national prosecutions. And so when we look at national prosecutions and the avenues there, there have been some trials in Iraq. Um, Around 150 persons have been executed, but this has been undertaken um, via an anti-terrorism framework. And often it's been criticized for the time of trials that have been Um, ran and if they have adhered to international standards. There's a lot of critique in that regard from human rights groups and also the UN. Mm. Um, And so there's been some prosecutions of foreign fighters in Europe, um, but now we're looking towards how can we have a coherent process that can really address this issue? And one um, proposal is a regional court. So perhaps a regional court set up in a Middle Eastern city Mm. or an international-backed international hybrid tribunal or a treaty-based body set up by the global coalition or something set up by the mm. EU. But of course, there are political barriers to all of these options to justice. And it really requires the international community to feel the need to support these efforts in order for them to proceed. So give me a, a quick rundown of what a listener at home could do today. Where could they go? What organization mm-hmm. would you suggest they work through to donate to Yazidis? Yeah. So firstly, they can support their local representatives to ensure that these issues are mobilized at the international level. They can support organizations doing great humanitarian and advocacy work, such as Yazda Organization, Free Yazidi Organization. There are many groups working on this issue, and also they can get involved with the refugee um, communities that are based in the U.S., in Minnesota, Nebraska, and North Dakota. There's some organizations um, based in Lincoln, Nebraska, such as the Yazda Cultural Organization, that they could try and support and link with to ensure that they can find out from the community what needs they have and try and get involved in a sustainable way at the local level too. Philip Greer, thank you so much for contextualizing this horrific atrocity and telling people what they need to know and why it matters. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you very much. Um, And thank you for listening to this episode of Weekend Warriors. I'm Essie Cup. Join me next time.